us of our sin. A new power within, we pray, to be the people we should be as we come and ask for in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's turn to 123 then before we turn to God's word. 123, lovely uh, John Newton hymn. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. 123. sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It suits his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives
sure you've heard of uh, Corrie ten Boom, that lovely little Dutch lady. And uh, maybe you've read um, The Hiding Place or maybe you've seen uh, the, the film of her life uh, as a family they, in the Second World War. They, they hid uh, Jewish people in their little watchmaker's home in Harlem, in Holland. And um, I think one of the first biographies, I think one of the first ones you read, Grant, wasn't it? And, uh, and uh, or maybe you've seen little videos and this lovely Dutch accent. I spoke about Jesus. <laughs> but um, she was full of little um, pithy sayings. Uh, and one of the things she said is, that if you want to be distressed, look around at the world. If you want to be depressed, look inside your own heart. If you want to be at rest, look at Jesus. And that's true, isn't it? It's a distressing world. And looking in is the quick route to depression. But when we look at Jesus Christ, everything changes. That's why the scriptures say to fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the finisher, perfecter of your faith. So, as Christians, we're to be focused. The Apostle Paul, one thing I do. <laughs> uh, and so we know these things. We must fix our eyes upon Jesus. And I don't know if you ever find that. You think, well, I'm so down today. Well, why is it? Well, normally, because we're looking at uh, the circumstances around us, family problems, um, things to do, <laughs> things you should have done. Anyway, you know, we, we, we look everywhere, and then we thought, oh, what am I doing? I must fix my eyes upon Jesus. And so we are people who are so easily distracted. We, we lose focus and Focus, really, I guess, is the thing we're looking at tonight. Dealing with distraction. And we have an enemy who seeks to distract us, wants to get us down. Um, if we're truly Christians, we can't lose our salvation. We rejoice in that. You know, it's God keeping his hand upon us. We, we've been gripped. With, with we can't lose our salvation. But the next best thing the devil will seek to do is to so get us down that we are just no good to man or beast. Um, well, dealing with distraction. We're going to have a look at the book of Nehemiah because um, what we have a look at here, this was the key point, uh, a key, a turning point, if you like, in, in the work. And we know the book of Nehemiah, I'm sure. Here's this a young man. People of God have been in captivity in Babylon. And uh, the, the, the captives have been going back in, in stages. And so one group have gone back. And here's Nehemiah, this young man, still in captivity, still in Babylon, longing to know how things were going. And then the news comes that the people are in great distress. The world's been, the world's been burned down and things are not going at all well. So he, he feels God uh, really burdening him to do something about it. So we see him praying. The praying leads to action. That's always the route, isn't it? Prayer leads to doing something. And, and so uh, he sees the king. The king gives him permission and all the resources he needs to go back and start building the wall of Jerusalem. So the book of uh, Nehemiah is a great book, but there's nothing much more going on here than the building of the wall or the rebuilding of the wall. This is a book of revival. This is a book of God coming to his people at, at a low time and building them up and reviving them. And so this is a key time now 
because um, well, let me just read those opening verses again because this is the nearing the nearing the completion of the of the building. Um, chapter six. Um, I've got the New King James now. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I rebuilt the wall, and that there was no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates. That Sambalat and Geshem sent to me, saying, "Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the plain of Ono." But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, "I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you?" But they sent me this message four times. Won't be able to just leave it there. So here's Nehemiah, and we can see right from the start, he's convinced of the need to stay focused. There's an awareness about this man. He was a strong leader, a discerning man, and he knew exactly what was happening. Now, already um, he's had to deal with opposition. So these characters that are reappearing, he's met with them early before. Go back to chapter four. Beginning of chapter four, and we can see here that uh, there there is uh, Sanballat, there's Tobiah. Uh, these are the enemies of God, and um, and so looking behind this, this is satanically inspired opposition. When Paul in Ephesians uh, speaks uh, about that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood, uh, but spiritual forces of, of, uh, of Evil in heavenly realms. Um, opposition normally does come in flesh and blood form, doesn't it? Um, demons can clothe themselves. The, the devil uses flesh and blood to oppose his work so often. And so, this discerning man, he's had to deal with this opposition earlier. And, uh, and so, what we see here, um, before they've used mockery, uh, um, I mean, we have an enemy that knows very well how to, to get to us, mockery and threats. But when we come to chapter 6 now, um, chapters 5 and 6, actually, we'll, we'll, we'll skate over chapter 5 a little bit. But in chapter 5, what Nehemiah has to deal with here is a problem of approach, And yet we've got to see behind this, um, he's dealing with this, this whole problem of um, just look at chapter 5, there's a great outcry, um, a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish. It's a bitter complaint uh, about hardship. Um, and it's a four-part complaint, really. Um, what they're saying, well, in verse 2, we're struggling to eat. <laughs> this is a very practical problem here. They might have to deal with. We're struggling to eat. Verse 3, we're mortgaged up to the hilt. <laughs> verse 4, the taxation is a problem. It's crushing us. And then verse 5, this is the exploitation. Why should our children be slaves whilst their children, that is the nobles who are quite well off, have all they want? Aren't we all one people? So these are really practical problems. And, and you know, when we apply this to the church, there are sometimes very practical problems that come to us 
and yet there can be a force when it begins to getting us down there can be a force behind it that really pulls us away from bigger issues now we're looking at here times were inevitably, inevitably hard um, this was a rebuilding program um, you know, the, the, there was a cost to, to building this wall, to, to rebuilding the city, but the point was aggravated here uh, by these wealthy people. They were exploiting the poor, and uh, these were God's people. Now, um, the law was very clear. In fact, we go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse, verse 19. If I can just read that out. Um, this is what uh, God has said. You shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out of interest. So the, so the law was very clear, but these people were exploiting their, their fellow, their, their brothers. And, um, and so um, a real practical problem, money. <laughs> And uh, we're living in days where, where there, there, there are hardships, these, these are difficult days, and we're hearing on the news all the time. Oh, and I know, I know it's, um, it is relative. We look at some nations, they're struggling with a, a piece of bread. And we look at our nation, and uh, in our church, we're, we're involved in, in capitalism against poverty. And And it does sort of pale into, into, into times. And yet there are real people with real struggles. And if we're not struggling ourselves, we, we tend to think, well, it's not much of a problem, really. And now this was just a problem here. There were those who were doing okay, even exploiting, they were heartless and, and insensitive. And, uh, and it's the, the age old thing is that money can be a, a delicate matter, and uh, certainly as, uh, as Christian leaders, we feel a little bit embarrassed, maybe it's our, our Britishness, the Americans don't find it such a problem, but we can feel a problem, speaking about money at times, and yet um, it, is, it is a big, not just a big um, practical problem, but there is something about, um, about our view of money that does, does, does affect us. And, um, I found that if a person is, 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 is mean, it's the whole of their life. So, so a meanness when it comes to money can be a meanness of, of heart. And it can blight every area. I remember reading a Billy Graham quote um, some years ago. And he said, if a person gets his attitude right towards money, it will straighten out almost every other area of his life. <laughs> That's not true, isn't it? If you're a generous person, it, it, it does seem, it's not being generous in money, there's, there's a generous overflowing spirit. And that's what God is about at the end. Are, are we generous hearted? Are we generous in our words to people, in our encouragement? Somehow we can have that meanness. I think meanness is probably one of the most serious sins, and yet one of the sins that's overlooked. Because we're living in a culture. Let's speak about being prudent now. Let us be prudent, you know. Whereas we need to be um, light-hearted and, and generous. That's what God is. But really, positively, it just does seem a bit negative. But generosity is a wonderful, 
quality, isn't it? And it's our duty um, to be generous, overflowing people. Paul writes um, to the people of Corinth. He's building up this church in building in good things here. Um, 1 Corinthians 16, Paul writes, um, Now about the collection of the Lord's people, on the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Now there's something very wise about that. We, we, we're getting near to um, um, children in need, what's the, the pudgy bear? You were getting near that season, and all the emotional pressure. Now they're great causes. Um, and and it's not hard to give. When you feel emotional over something, it's not hard you get moved and so you give something, you know, and that's good. But it's not the best. That's why Paul writes to the Corinthians saying, Well listen, you can get locked in to a pattern of giving. And, and I'm sure you do this here, that you have a you have a system so you can give on a regular basis. So you're not to give them when you're, oh, I do it first today. <laughs> you know, that will mean. You know, but rather that we lock ourselves into a pattern, a godly pattern, where we set aside an amount of our money so that we can give. And that can be a blessing to to the church and to the wider field. Now, why are we saying this? Well, it's because it was getting Nehemiah down. <laughs> this was a problem that affected him was affecting the work. And uh, and it shouldn't have been that. He should have been able to, to look outward, and yet he was being caught up with this eternal problem. And I know from you know, my own church leadership over the years, one of the greatest distractions is when you have to deal with things in the church, one of the most depressing things of, of all. So there's the internal strife of great grief to Nehemiah and him from the main task that he'd been called to. But really, the rest of chapter 5 is dealing with how Nehemiah deals with this problem. So um, he rebukes those who are guilty. Great courage in doing that. <laughs> rebukes those who are guilty. And, uh, and what is amazing, he's able to point to himself as an example of generosity. So um, verse, chapter 5, verse 12. Um, great response um, he, he set the example, and listen to this response. So they said, we will restore it and will require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And then I called the priests and required an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. So this is great, isn't it? That, um, that people respond. This is the, the leader's dream when... Um, when a message is preached and people say, we're going to do what you say. What? <laughs> well, you know, um, it's obedience. And, and so the, the man's encouraged here. It's been a thorny issue to, to, to grapple with. And yet the people respond well and they can, they can get on with, with, with the main job. But it's distraction. And, and the time and the energy, well, you know very well, that there are certain things that crop up in our lives, and we think, if only I didn't have to deal with it, it's draining. There are certain things, and you know, and you work out your own scenario, but certain things happen, and I don't know what it is, I, I personally find, it's the family. What's the most demanding 
and draining area of all, what gives us the sleepless nights, what gives us the tossing and the turn, well, the nearer it is to us. Family issues are normally the, the most difficult issues to, to deal with. So, um, what are we saying? Well, let's not get distracted. Let's not take our eyes off the ball. At times, I, I don't, I've got a weird mind, I suppose, but um, at times, the Christian life seems like we're, we're, we're rugby players. Now, just be, if you're not a rugby player, bear with me. I'm not either. But you've seen them. You, they've got the ball under the arm, and they're going for the goalpost. And as they go for the ball, there's a hand coming out every possible direction. Of, you know, legs can pull the arm, but they're going on. Now, doesn't the Christian life feel like that at times? We're trying to fix our eyes on the goal. There's a hand here, and a, you know, you're being pulled. But we've got to fix our eyes on the goal, haven't we? And so here's Nehemiah. But there's more distraction on the way. So we're going to get to chapter 6 now. Um, now what happened, we, we, we read this just now, when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard I rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages. But they thought to do me harm. So that's the context then, isn't it? If these things came alone, we could probably cope with it. But it's when you get a cluster of things happening that we just feel, oh, another thing to deal with. So the message is sent to Nehemiah. Let's get together. Now, as I say, under his leadership, the wall is almost completed. This is the timing we see here. Now, Tobiah and his cronies, we know very well that they were opposed to the work. His people are saying, let's get together, but we know very well they were against the work. But now they're saying, well, let's, let's cooperate. So they're asking him to leave Jerusalem uh, and to join them from a conference. This is a place called Ono. Um, this was located on the seacoast near the Gaza Strip. So we've seen that on the news recently, haven't we? This is where Ono was, uh, on that Gaza strip, strip, but Nehemiah has the discernment to realize the power behind it. Uh, they sent this message. Notice how adamant they were, no, how persistent. They sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. So it's a tactic here, and what we're looking at, just to, just to draw it out a little bit more, it, it, they were after a unity when it was impossible for there to be unity. These were not on the same team. And, um, well, we again, over the years, we've had the same thing. People think, oh, let's just let's get together. But we know very well that unless um, we really are on the same course, we can't do it. And unless it's a unity based on Scripture, then we can't join together. And it's hard at times because we have to come to the Word of God and say, well, are we, are we really on the same team? Are we really pushing for the same cause? Are we really preaching the same gospel? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? Do we really have the same message? And very often it's painful, but we have to say no. You know, uh, we don't have the same gospel. Sometimes it's another gospel. 
Um, and so we hold on, even though we're misunderstood, we're holding on to the fact that no, we can't. Um, we can't join with you. And although true unity is a beautiful thing, if it's not uh, ordered according to scripture, then we just can't go along with it. So here is it, distraction. Come down and meet uh, with us, but we can't do that. But notice how it, how the plot thickens. And so next there is slander. Now, um, Nehemiah's had this before, um, but, but it is, his character now is being um, attacked. And um, they're, they're accusing him of his reputation. He wants, to be, he wants to be a king. He's power mad. Uh, and it hurts, doesn't it? But when people criticize us or we're misunderstood, it hurts. We, we immediately want to jump um, and, and defend ourselves. He um, must have felt this. You want to be the king of Judah. Well, he didn't. This man had a real heart out of the God. He wasn't doing this for himself. And yet they're trying to smear Nehemiah's character, uh, destroy his credibility, his reputation. How do you cope with criticism? You know, or people misunderstand you. They misunderstand your motive. It hurts, doesn't it? Um, we naturally want to clear our, clear our name. We naturally want to jump to defend ourselves. And yet when we look at the Lord Jesus, we see there's a very different attitude altogether. And um, I remember reading a lovely uh, quotation um, by A.W. Tozer years ago. Um, he said, if, if you take care of your character, God will take care of your reputation. That's great, isn't it? What's our job? Well, to make sure that we're people of integrity. If we take care of our character, God will take care of our reputation. So let people say what they want. And it's hard. Um, read some um, years ago about Susanna Spurgeon. Um, apparently the Spurgeon, this is uh, Charles Spurgeon's wife, they kept chickens. And, uh, and people accused them of, uh, I wouldn't say feathering their own nest, <laughs> but they accused them of uh, just making a little sideline going on here with the, the chickens. But what they were doing was that they were selling the eggs and they, they wouldn't um, give them away. They were selling the eggs. There's a bit of a little sideline going on here. But they were using the, 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 the money to support widows. But they didn't defend themselves. They just left it with God, even though they hurt to be criticized or misunderstood. So how should a Christian react? How should we react when we are misunderstood or, or we're criticized? Well, just four little points here. Firstly, um, we take it to God in prayer. If someone criticizes me, then I need to pray because actually they might have something. They might be right. <laughs> I am a sinful person. And, and so pray about it. Lord, what they're saying, is it true? Because sometimes we need to sort ourselves out. Lord, it's true. Forgive me. Give me grace to, to change. So if we ain't criticized, pray. Could there be truth in it? So secondly, if there is truth in it, put it right. And again, we leave our reputation with, with God. Thirdly, um, thank God for the opportunity 
to humble ourselves. Well, thank you. This is part of your sanctifying process. You're dealing with me and, and you're purifying me. Thank you, Lord, for those who are attacking me. What a wonderful opportunity. And then fourthly, we pray for grace to continue. That's what Nehemiah does in verse 9, isn't it? Now, therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. I, I love these little arrow prayers we get in Nehemiah, don't you? You know, at times you just shoot up a little arrow prayer. Oh, Lord, see how they're treating me. And, you know, isn't that great? We can do that. We can, we can just send up an arrow. Now, O God, strengthen my hands. So, there will always be pressure. If we're, if we're seeking to live with the Lord, there will always be pressure. Pressure to make us give up and, and run. We see this here in verse, in verse uh, 10. Um, Afterward I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabil, who was a secret informer. And he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they're coming to kill you. Indeed, at night, they will come to kill you. In verse 11, and I said, should such a man as I flee. Notice that. He's resisting the devil. That's uh, the New Testament take on it. See, there are dark forces always at work in our lives. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the devil had holidays? Wouldn't it be nice? Or if he did a five-day week? That would be nice, wouldn't it? Or when we had a holiday, yeah, you take the same time. As, you know, wouldn't that be great? But this is a battle 24-7. Our battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and it is 24-7. He doesn't take pity on us when we're getting older or when we're sick. Not for a moment is there any let-up. There are dark forces at work to discourage us and to, if he could, to drive us to despair and to bring us away from the source of power, which is Jesus to cut us off. <laughs> we were talking about spinach earlier when we have some really in-depth conversations on it. And, uh, we, and there's no one old enough to remember the old Popeye cartoons here, is there? Oh, come on. <laughs> but do you remember those Popeye cartoons? And they hear old, poor old Popeye beaten up by Bluto, this great giant. What would he do? <laughs> well, he'd reach for the spinach, you know, and sometimes suck it through his pipe and as soon as you had the spinach, if you, have, if you have never seen it, you think I'm mad. But Popeye knew where, the, where his source of strength was, in the spinach. Now, as Christians, we know, if only we can get to Jesus. Lord, help me here. And that's where our strength is found. And then the devil does all he can to keep us from that source of power and strength. So, it's, um, it's keeping going, isn't it? It's keeping going. I must admit, when I, when I was a young man, a young Christian, and, uh, and he's a fairly young man as well, um, I used to dream of being secretly martyred when I was young. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be glorious to go out, you know, like it'd be headlines in the Bournemouth Echo, evangelist, speared to death by angry pensioners in Bournemouth Town Centre, or, you know, some glorious headline. And, 
You know, here I am, I'm in my 70s, still having to keep going. Oh, Lord, it gets harder, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be wonderful, you know, and uh, I just, you know, looking at some of the lovely biographies there, Robert Murray McShane, his work was done by his 20s, Jim Elliott, you know, the, the, the saints, it was over. And here we are, still going, aren't we? Still at it. Isn't it hard, folks? Isn't it hard? But that's what it is. We've got to keep going. Year in, year out. I recently of a young man, and he, his mum sent him to London to be a barber, to be trained as, as a barber. And uh, while he was there, he heard George Whitfield preach. This was a few years ago. And um, anyway, he was converted. By the age of 25, he's been called into the ministry and got a really growing, successful church in Cambridge. But it went to his head, and uh, he didn't do too well. He started to drift, started to trust in himself more than God. And he just drifted. He lost his first love. And there was a, a, a scene I was reading of that he's, he faded into obscurity. And as an old man, he's traveling by stagecoach. And there's a lady opposite reading a book. And she's obviously moved by this. And she wants to share it with this elderly man opposite. And it was the words of a hymn. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Lovely words. But the man burst into tears. And he said, Madam, I'm the poor, unhappy man who wrote that hymn many years ago. I would give a thousand worlds to enjoy those feelings again. Uh, Robert Robinson. You wrote, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. So, what am I saying? Keep going. <laughs> We've just got to keep going. It doesn't seem a very glamorous thing, does it? But it, it's a glorious thing that we're keeping going. Our lives don't seem spectacular, but God is pleased. By the way, we just keep going. In our weakness, with all our failures, we're still in the race, aren't we, saints? We're still going. You're here tonight. Praise the Lord. We are still going. So we pray, Lord, give me grace not to be distracted. And even our very weakness brings glory to his name, doesn't it? Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you that it's you, Lord, that gives us grace. We do believe in the perseverance of the saints. And yet, Lord, you call us to look to you, to fix our eyes upon Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You never waver. You never wane. And Lord, we're even encouraged by the greatest saints in your word who had their flaws and their failures and their dips. And Lord, we're just the same. We're just like Elijah. 
rejoicing over triumph one minute, then crying out for you to take our life the next. Lord, we pray, just give us strength today. Lord, that's all we pray, just for today. Give us strength. Because we know that when we call upon you tomorrow, we can ask you for grace for tomorrow too. So Lord, thank you that we're here tonight. We, we realize, Lord, that we're only here because you've kept us. And so, Lord, we pray for grace to love you, to honor you, and to, even in our lowest moments, to recognize even these can bring glory to your name. So hear us, Father, we pray, as we offer these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's uh, turn for our final hymn to four. Three, two. This is one of my funeral hymns. I can't give you the date. Sorry about that. I'll, I'll let you know as soon as I get some indication. Give me the faith which can remove and sink the mountain to a plain. It's a prayer, isn't it? Give me the childlike praying love which longs to build thy house again. Thy love, let it my heart o'erpower. And all my simple soul devour. Four, three, two. for them who have 
yet, my Savior.